0: Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Annavarapu, the host of this channel, and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Kristen Pliss, the author of the wonderful book, Growing Resistance, The Indian Coffee House and the Emergency in Postcolonial India, which was published by Cambridge University Press earlier this year. Kristen is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much, Kristen, for taking time out to chat with me. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed your book. It was so rich and insightful about an issue that I thought I knew a lot about, but turns out I didn't. So thank you for writing this.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And before we start talking about this awesome book, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became a sociologist.
1: Sure. I'd be happy to do that. Um, so I guess my journey to sociology, I think like most people, was sort of a roundabout one. In undergrad, I started out as a math major, um, but was also always involved in left student politics. So I later picked up um, a sociology major because I thought it would make me a better informed student activist. Um, but, and then after finishing my BA, I worked in development economics for about two years, mostly doing econometrics And at that time, I continued to be interested in like critical political economy that I was, you know, picking up during my sociology major and my BA. But one of the things that I was exposed to at that time, because I was hanging around economists, was economic history. And I became really interested in that. Um, And so at the time, and this was during the financial crisis of 2008, I thought about going back to school to do a PhD in economic history and heterodox economics um, but the people that I was working with told me that if I was really keen on pursuing these two subfields of economics, it would be really difficult to forge a career as an economist. So I applied to sociology programs instead because I thought that there would be space to do Marxist political economy and economic history, but then still have some kind of job prospects after finishing the PhD, um, unlike in economics where those subfields are like pretty much dead at this point. But I think that there's still a space for these more critical engagements in sociology.
0: Yeah. Um, and yeah, that is a roundabout route. The, like, this is the first time that I've heard of someone doing like economics and then sociology, at least on this podcast. So thanks <laughs> for sharing that. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are now galvanized to do sociology. <laughs> 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 so how was this particular book or this project conceived and how did this unfold? Um, in, in I guess in grad school, but uh, if you could tell us a little more about that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, given my background in student politics and then in economics, um, I really wanted my dissertation research uh, to tell this optimistic story about workers' agency in the global south and also about anti emancipatory, anti capitalist, and anti imperialist struggles. And so the initial plan was to do comparative work on workers cooperatives in Argentina and Uruguay after the financial crisis there, compared to like worker cooperatives in Tunisia and Egypt during the Arab revolutions. And that was where I sort of had the area expertise and the language investment at that point in my life. Um, and I was especially keen on doing research in North Africa since that's where my mother's family immigrated to the, from, like, was from there and immigrated to the US from North Africa. Um, But after I defended my dissertation proposal, the revolutions in North Africa had intensified in that moment. And at the same time that door was closing, there was this opportunity to go to Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi as an exchange student. So at that point, I decided to pivot a bit and, and rethink the project with the same theme about workers' movements, but in a different geography. Um, And GNU was particularly exciting to me as a space for less student politics, but I didn't really at that point have a specific area interest in South Asia. So I spent the time before I was, you know, going to take the plane to Delhi, uh, reading up a lot about the cooperative movement in India and Indian labor history. And that's when I started to become really interested in Indian Coffee House, since it's the largest workers cooperative in India but was also occupied and appropriated by its Communist Party-affiliated workers in 1946 during the Freedom Movement um, as this really interesting and different kind of intervention against colonialism and capitalism. So it really seemed to me to be this uplifting anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist story that I wanted to tell and use to um, build theory and later, uh, I came to learn of its importance during the emergency, and then I started to focus mostly on that part of the firm's trajectory. Since, while well, not much I think is known about the origins of Indian Coffee House, there was next to nothing written in about its fascinating history in the resistance against the emergency.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this is really interesting, and uh, just as a general observation i think it's heartening to know that while the door was closing on one project you were so quickly able to pivot and write this fantastic you know uh, dissertation and eventually book so that's that's always it's it's always inspiring to learn of these uh, stories um thanks for sharing that um so in the book you observe that in the years following the independence of india it became Amply clear that the lives of workers, peasants, students, and caste and religious minorities in these countries was not really living up to the rosy promises of um, self reliance that fueled the independence struggle in India. In the book, you argue against France Fanon's provocation, namely, What was the point of fighting if nothing was really destined to change? Uh, by highlighting the role of anti colonial workers' movements. Uh, could you say a little bit uh, about the theoretical role of anti-colonial labor movements in the third world but also in india in particular perhaps what made you uh, made you think got got you thinking about the dissertation project to begin with
1: of course yeah that's an excellent question um so w- the way i think about workers across workers movements across the global south um much like the workers of the indian coffee house if we're thinking about the more particular case there was this really important role that they played in pushing independence movements to the left, in demanding economic redistribution and pushing for a more equal society. However, in the period following independence, in most cases the class structures largely remained unchanged. And so that's why F- Frantz Fanon posed this critical question of whether or not independence movements were really worth the effort if in the post-colonial period, not much had changed for the working classes. So in the book, as you as you mentioned, I'm really grappling with Fanon's question and trying to update it to show that often the problem of a flag independence, as Walter Rodney would term it, was not simply that the colonial class structures remained in place, but that things got worse as many newly independent states then tipped into authoritarian repression in the decades after independence. Um, and so I think despite the doubts that Fanon expressed in this really important question, ultimately he was optimistic about the future of the global South. And he wrote that when it comes to creating a liberated global South, the project must be to try to solve the problems that Europe was incapable of solving. And so what he termed the third world project it really rejected this I- the idea and the notion of catching up and instead really tried to innovate a new way of thinking. And I think that these expressions show Fanon believed in the creativity of the global south and envisioning and also enacting these new forms of politics that would then provide solutions to longstanding social problems that were inherited from centuries of colonial rule. So the, when we think about then anti-colonial labor movements, such as the Indian coffeehouse workers struggle, or even analog workers movements in, say, Algeria, Mozambique, or Tanzania, for example, that occupied and then collectivized their workplaces in the heat of national liberation movements, um, and then pursued worker self-management in the context of anti-colonial movements as a way of economic delinking from both capitalism and empire. Um, and so while like these autonomous workers movements may have failed in their more radical goal of fundamentally transforming post-colonial class structures, but I think that by occupying colonial for- firms and transforming them into worker cooperatives, they did create these enduring institutions. And as movements to truly realize the promises of national liberation were once again, uh, resurgent during the world revolutions of 1968. So, in India, we can point to examples such as the Dalit Panthers or the Naxalite movement, and so on. So, the Indian coffee house in this conjuncture then becomes an important resource to the movements in and around 68, especially after authoritarian rule was imposed in India during the emergency as a way to quell these demands for equality and justice.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's uh, really well put. Uh, Thanks. Uh, And and I think you just mentioned this, but I would like to bring it back to the discussion that the book provokes uh, some thought around this one dominant narrative around decolonization in third world countries that many countries kind of tipped back into political repression after long independent struggles. You call this a democratic reversal. Um, in India, the culmination of this democratic reversal was, of course, the national emergency imposed by Indira Gandhi. Uh, could you give our listeners who might be somewhat unaware of this history a sense of how this emergency came about and the factors that led to it, um, as as you have discovered in
1: your research? For sure. Um, so in, in a lot of speeches and later testimonials, Indira Gandhi's stated reasons for imposing the emergency was that these many social movements in India during the early 1970s posed such a severe threat to economic development that therefore democracy had to be revoked in order to suppress these movements for the good of the economy. And so in the historiography on the emergency, we see generally two arguments about why the emergency was imposed. Uh, One camp that supports Indira Gandhi's narrative that the social movements of the early 70s were such a threat to the state that Gandhi had no choice but to declare emergency. And then the other position is that these movements were not a significant threat to the state, but Gandhi was more concerned with the Allahabad ruling that barred her from office due to corruption. And so she declared the emergency to maintain power. And my argument in the book, which is based on extensive archival research um, in India and elsewhere, is that Indira Gandhi's economic development policies from the 1960s on further immiserated certain marginalized groups, um, for example, the urban poor, peasants, workers, Dalits, Muslims, and others. Um, And so the social movements of the 70s then were this direct response to the human consequences of her economic development policies of the late 60s. Um, And these movements were certainly a threat to the state in the early 70s, but had been largely suppressed by the time the emergency was declared. And so for that reason, I think the evidence shows that Gandhi was responding to this attempt to oust her from office rather than responding to social protest that was a threat to the state. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, that's uh, and you focus on one particular worker movement right in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So the workers' movement that I'm, I'm focusing on is the Indian Coffee House uh, movement, both uh, during the emergency and during the freedom struggle. And so, just to give, I guess, a bit of background about the history of the coffee house, because I don't think it's very widely known. It was founded in 1936 in the context of a British Empire wide commodities export surplus crisis. And this figure, MJ Simon Avergal, who was from Travancore, was appointed secretary of the Indian Coffee Sess Act Committee's marketing wing in the context of this um, commodities crisis. And as part of his approach to domestic marketing in order to create uh, more demand for coffee, in order to try to overcome this uh, uh, commodities export surplus crisis, he created a chain of cafes across India called Coffee House, in order to increase domestic consumption, to advertise Indian coffee, and develop a taste for coffee among the Indian public. Simon then staffed all of the locations of this firm with laborers from his home state of Kerala, uh, which became important in 1946 with the publication of this pamphlet called uh, Coffeehouse Laborers Are Also Human Beings. And the pamphlet was written in Malayalam, by three coffeehouse workers and communist party members at the coffeehouse location in Calicut, and it was then circulated to um, coffeehouse workers across British in, British India in different locations of the firm, and it was accessible to all since at all locations Malayalam was the mother tongue of coffeehouse workers as a result of these staffing policies, and there was minimal education requirements. So soon after the circulation of this pamphlet, which was a you know a critique of labor conditions in the cafes, locations of Coffee House were then occupied and renamed Indian Coffee House. Uh, and this renaming of the firm by its workers, uh, I read as a symbolic gesture that they were appropriating this British firm and its assets and reclaiming it for Indian workers. So, after India's independence, the Indian Coffee House Workers' Labor Union then became a legally recognized trade union affiliated with the Communist Party of India undivided. And the union's first order of business, though, was to resist the termination of Indian coffee house workers, because immediately after independence, then uh, Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru and the Coffee Board of India tried to close the coffee houses that the workers had occupied in the heat of the freedom struggle. So their union vice president, um, A.K. gopalan which will be familiar to um, to many people familiar with the Indian left, um, was uh, you know created then a group in uh, May of 1957 to stop the closure of these coffeehouse locations. And the goal, because again, the workers were affiliated with the Communist Party, one, they wanted to restate them as a state-owned firm just as they were under the British Raj because they thought it would be part of you know, this kind of communist style development program that they really wanted to see happen in independent India. So the coffee board then was very contentious with this workers movement um, and tried to then sell off the cafes to private ownership later in June of 57. Um, but in at the end of the month of June in 1957, Indian coffee house workers started a hunger strike And they wore black badges and held public demonstrations in every city where there was an Indian coffee house. Um, And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, speeches and deliberation and public rallies. And I'll just mention that one of the slogans of the workers and that Time was the coffee houses we work in belong to us, which I think really shows this appropriation of uh, of a colonial firm and this intervention into global economic relations. But by you know by the end of 1957, then the um, Indian coffee houses were registered as official cooperatives as part of this compromise between A.K. Gopal and Jawaharlal Nehru. And then, if we fast forward to the 1970s, the Indian Coffee House, because of its relationship to the left workers movement during independence, um, its its um, involvement in the cooper- cooperative movement in India, became this hub for leftists and bohemian types, and. Um, you know, it was a place where a lot of different political groups, not just among the left, but mostly among the left, would gather and have these daily, you know, political meetings and um, art and literary salons. And so it became kind of more than just this, inter- this intervention by its workers against capitalism and colonialism. It became what I term in the book an autonomous zone. Um, and by an autonomous zone, I mean this social movement resource where, One can develop subversive, discursive practices, but also envision and enact different kinds of social practices and relations. So it became this really creative space where the left and maybe, you know, non-affiliated artists and bohemian types would, um, you know, try to envision new ways of, of living and new ways of being in society, and so, this autonomous zone then of the Indian Coffee House became critically important to many of the nodes of resistance against the emergency. And this all then culminated in the bulldozing of Indian Coffee House, the location in Connaught Place in New Delhi in 1976. Um, and as one Indian Coffee House worker at the time put it, the Indian Coffee House found its place in history not through its worker struggle during independence, but through its martyrdom at the hands of Sanjay Gandhi during the emergency. Um, and we can see how it became such a threat to the state in this critical moment of Indian history that it was then demolished without warning.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such a, again, like a fascinating history of uh, uh, an aspect of social like life around that time that at least I had not much of an idea about. Uh, but I just wanted to perhaps um, ask of, uh, invite you to say a little bit more about this concept of the autonomous zone and perhaps its potential generalizability in thinking about anti-colonial labor movements all around the world. Like how do you theorize the autonomous zone and what does that theorization do to our understanding of politics?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, Part of the autonomous zone, because it's, you know, it is a social movement resource, but it's also something more than that, because it becomes this space of engagement and exploration and creativity and envisioning of um, utopian futures. So it's not, you know, I think it also shifts our focus to um, away from maybe more traditional ways of thinking about democracy movements, Um, in this particular case, in terms of how one goes about restoring democracy. But I think that it it shifts the register to sort of how can one create a social movement in really difficult conditions. So um, it's sort of this Arendtian problem if everyone is so isolated and lonely and repressed and um, You know, and in a in the moment of authoritarian rule, how can you organize collective action against a state in this in this moment of extreme repression? And so, I think that the autonomous zone is is great for doing that because by bringing people together who are you know um, feeling that alienation or that loneliness that authoritarian rule creates. In showing that it's this general emotion that everyone is feeling at the time, it really breaks that loneliness and shows that, um, you know, in this collective feel that there there's something more. Um, and so I think that the the autonomous zone has this effect of, um, you know, showing that what one might internalize as sort of an individual problem is actually really a social concern. And so then it provides this basis. which you can then launch a movement against the state. But then there's also more pragmatic concerns where, um, for example, you can distribute information and material, like leaflets and different kinds of pamphlets and other materials, or have conversations about political strategy. Um, Or even, you know, there's stories that I tell in the book of um, as part of the more violent resistance against the emergency, socialists would uh, circulate bomb-making materials through various nodes of Indian coffeehouse, transporting them from place to place through um, union and railway worker um, union uh, connections to the coffeehouse. So there was a lot of ways in which you know these different resources and ways of thinking about collective action get crystallized in the space of the autonomous zone
0: yeah thank you that was uh, uh, really succinct and uh, the stories in the book are uh, are absolutely uh, incredible for the lack of a better word um, so I, I kept thinking about this as, a, as I was reading the book but how how did you go about doing research for a book like this and what I guess, what was the process of collecting these archival materials? I'm sure you had to travel a lot, but were there issues that you faced with the state in doing a project such as this? Because the emergency is a difficult uh, time, and I think there are lots of uh, sensorial tendencies around studying that era uh, of Indian politics. Uh, if you could shed some light on your process, that would be great.
1: For sure, yeah. I mean, I, the as you mentioned the records of the emergency are still censored somewhat unofficially, but more or less officially in, you know, depending on which archive you go to in and around Delhi. And so there had to be some kind of a creative strategy because the newspapers were censored. So the newspaper sources are not reliable. And then the archives are also not available for the period of the emergency either. So Newspaper sources are not a a good option to pursue to do this kind of project, nor um, can one solely rely on archival information. So my research strategy that I developed for the book was to triangulate among archival sources, oral histories, and memoirs that were both written at the time and then um, years later. And in terms of the archival work, I worked in 12 different archives uh, in three different countries in order to get different kinds of uh, perspectives and materials. So I worked in various archives in and around India, um, the British uh, Library, uh, India Office Records, to get more background on the history of Coffeehouse. And then at the Zentrum moderner Orient in Berlin, where a lot of um, East German Indologists in the 70s were really fascinated with particularly the Indian left during the emergency. And so there's some really interesting first person accounts of different East German Indologists who were traveling through India during the emergency. And many of them also collected left political pamphlets. So that was also a really important source. Um, but because many of the records of the emergency remain censored, especially in the, the official archives in India, I think that the, the main source then became oral histories, and these were primarily conducted in order to overcome the limitations of the written archive. So in, um, in the course of my research for the book, I conducted 26 oral histories and each of them lasted anywhere from about forty-five minutes, and the longest one I conducted was eight hours, which was a wow. very in- intense interview, <laughs> um, and but a lot of fun and a lot of breaks for for chai and sweets, um, and so. But my goal, uh, effectively, was to trace narrators who were Indian coffeehouse regulars um, and also members of all of the opposition parties that were active in the movement against the emergency and there were both left and right oppositions to the emergency and i was relatively successful in recruiting people from different political parties so on the right i was able to interview folks from the rss and jamaat islami and then on the left i spoke with socialist party members um, communist party of india members communist party of india marxist members and naxalites but unfortunately, I wasn't able to successfully recruit any Akali Dal members to participate, which I think is, is actually quite a shame because their trajectory during the emergency was incredibly interesting and very important. And I detailed some of this in the book through secondary sources and through different oral histories with members from other political parties. But I, I do hope that somebody will be able to build on these threads and write something about Akali Dal's resistance, and can uncover more information about like the jathas that they organize daily across the Punjab, like every during the emergency. Um, but you know, I, I think that the oral histories I was able to conduct have provided this new um, and really important information about the movements against the emergency, and I see that part of the book in particular as this critically important record of the contributions of, of those who led the movement against the emergency, particularly in the absence of newspaper records and archival sources.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks for sharing uh, that with us. It's always interesting to see uh, a scholar's process because I think it, uh, so much of it depends on contingencies and chances and uh, serendipity in the field um I, and I, I I ask this question sometimes because um I think it makes uh, writers a little bit perhaps uncomfortable, but it's always interesting to know but if there was something that you could go back and do differently, what might that be uh, in the writing of this book? Hmm.
1: um <laughs> that's that's a really good question. um I mean, I think that I wish that I um maybe got to the the emergency piece a little sooner. Because I think I was, uh, I had been living in Delhi for maybe about nine or 10 months before I really started to think about shifting. And I think that I was a little reticent at first to make that shift from thinking about the workers' movements during independence to thinking about that period. But it was ultimately something that was really rewarding um and i also think that it would have been um you know i mean i guess that there's always much more that one can do and there are always more archives to go to and more people to talk with um so that's kind of a, a you know that's always a um i think one of those regrets but i you know i think all in all i'm i'm pleased with how it turned out and uh i hope that it will um, help people to learn more about the emergency and uh, and also maybe inspire different ways of thinking about this contemporary moment that we live in across the globe that is characterized by this resurgent authoritarianism. And so I do think it's kind of critically important to think about, you know, questions of authoritarianism and how to form movements to resist it in the current period.
0: Yeah, uh. Um- that's that's great. Um, I wondered whether to ask you this, considering it's sort of outside the scope of the book, but it does get at something you hint to towards the end, especially in the conclusive uh, paragraphs. Um, what has happened to spaces like the coffee house now? Or uh, if I may push this further, uh, where might you locate this autonomous zone at a time uh, when India is going through perhaps a comparable political scenario, which is right now?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so when we think about the Indian coffee house in particular, there are various locations that are currently under threat, which is troubling as as someone who spent so much time, you know, in the space of the coffee house and thinking about the coffee house. But there was a recent attempt this year um, by land mafia in uh, UP to appropriate the Lucknow location of Indian coffee house. But luckily The UP Legislative Assembly stepped in to preserve the Lucknow Coffee House as a historic monument, which was a really interesting turn of events. And in New Delhi, the iconic location at Mohan Singh Place, which was established after the emergency had ended, is now at risk of bankruptcy because of the pandemic and the lockdown. So I hope that there will be some kind of intervention to protect this location as well, since it too is a really important historic space, um, not just in Delhi history, but in Indian history. Um, But in terms of your question about comparable autonomous zones uh, that can maybe animate contemporary movements against authoritarianism when it's resurgent in India and in so many other places, I don't know if I really know of any place in Delhi today where there are students and activists that represent the entire spectrum of Indian politics that would gather and deliberate. So I can think of a lot of spaces for the left, um, perhaps you know, particularly in JNU. But I think that things are so contentious right now among the left, right and center that I really can't imagine a conversation about politics or a deliberation about politics that involves particularly the RSS and BJP without things getting at best unproductively contentious, or as probably is more likely the case, you know, straight up violent. But this, you know, so I think that this inability to deliberate across party lines is something that we're seeing, you know, in India, but also across the globe in this current moment. And the fact that we don't see these kinds of political coalitions that were so important during the emergency in you know, fomenting resistance against the emergency state, I think, is a real detriment to this fight against a very pernicious right wing politics that has been far too successful in so many places around the globe. So, one lesson I think we can take away is that coalitions are really important and there needs to be some kind of way to find, converse- like, to have a conversation across party lines if we're right. to have successful movements against the far right.
0: Yeah thank you uh, that's uh, that's uh, really that's that's great. Um, well, before I let you go uh, and I've taken up a lot of your time uh, and I realize that I would love to know what you're working on right now and what we may expect to read from you in the near future.
1: Sure. Um, so for the next project, I'm looking. To the other side of the Punjab, um, to the Pak Tea House in Lahore, Pakistan, during the Ziaqoo of seventy-seven. So it's still in the seventies, and it's still in the cafe culture. But um, and this book, which is very much still in its preliminary stages, will likely examine how artists, poets, communists, and Maoists came together in this very important uh, literary and art salon to launch a cultural movement of resistance against the military dictator Zial Huk. And so the book will, again, explore a lot of the similar themes of post-colonial and democratic inclusion, of left resistance, uh, the cafe culture, this global authoritarian moment of the 1970s. But I see it as taking my work in a, a new direction in that it's going to be focused more on the role of art and poetry in movements against authoritarianism in this period, and really thinking about the role of... Um, of different kinds of cultural formations in opposing, uh, you know, far-right authoritarianism. Mm-hmm.
0: And have you started archival, I mean, I, I assume you started archival work around this, but how, how are you coping with the pandemic uh, induced restrictions, I guess, on travel and mobility?
1: Yeah, that's the perennial question right now, isn't it? Um, So I was able to go to Lahore for a while before the pandemic started and do some archival work and some oral histories as well. And I'm hoping to return at some point, um, but also considering ways, maybe in a a contingency to do interviews on Zoom or other kind of video chat. But, um, you know, there is there's nothing that can really replicate that that space of talking to someone, whether in a cafe or in their home about their, you know, their past. And so I think it's a very profound thing. And I hesitate to do that virtually, but we might be forced to do that in these strange times that we live in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And well, on that note, uh, I would just want to thank you so much for your time and for chatting uh, with me about your uh, awesome book, uh, Brewing Resistance. Um, And congratulations again on uh, having it out in the world. It's really, really exciting uh, to see it um, in, in print.
1: Thank you so much, Neha. And it was a great to be able to talk with you again after, I think the last time we saw each other was before the pandemic. So this was a really lovely discussion. (laughs) Thank you so much.
0: Of course, of course. Well, take care and good luck with uh, with everything, with the writing and the research and uh, with life. Thanks so
1: much. And the same to you.